things that happened. If you were here, you remember that between them. So in light of that, we realize that this seemingly ordinary statement, he had to go through Samaria, was not ordinary at all. He could have gone around, as, as many people would have gone around. Instead of going straight through Samaria, he, didn't, he did not have to go through. But love demanded he had to go through. That's why he did. See, Jesus didn't just speak the kingdom of God. He was always acting out the kingdom of God. He was always living the kingdom of God to help us understand what the kingdom of God was. In Matthew 5, he spoke these kingdom words. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know you can spend like a year just on but I tell you when Jesus, when Jesus changes scripture, isn't it? I think you can spend a lot of time there, right there, just on those few words. Anyway, is everyone here with me? All right, good. So, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is how the kingdom works, right here. This is actually an invitation to leave behind the wisdom of our kingdoms and dive into the wisdom of the divine kingdom, to embrace it. And this is exactly what Jesus acted out. He didn't just say this. He acted it out all the time throughout the Gospels. But specifically right here in this story, he acted this out by going through Samaria and loving the Samaritans, the enemy. So I want to talk about this this morning. Because if this is the center of the kingdom, enemy love, then perhaps we should be serious about understanding it. Because I know if you're like me, and even though we talk a lot about grace here and a lot about love others and stuff, this whole enemy love, to me, remains the greatest mystery of all. How in the world are we supposed to love our enemies? Have you, I, I mean, come on. I, this morning's an honest morning. Some of the things we're going to talk about. All right? How are we supposed to love our enemies? If ever there was a distinct difference between God and us, this is it. And so I think mostly, this is why we make up our own God. This is why I love that quote from Annie Lamott. You can be sure you've made God in your own image if it turns out he hates the same people as you. That is such a beautiful quote. Right? So what is enemy love? Because I think most of us don't even want to do this. And even those of us who would like to follow Jesus even here find it impossible. So let's talk about it. First of all, what's an enemy? What is an enemy? I suggest to you an enemy is an identity we give someone else. It's an identity we give someone else. So there are people who hurt us, definitely. There are people who want to hurt us. There are people who hate us. There are people who would spend their time, no doubt, doing us harm. Okay? People who are caustic and with whom we probably need firm boundaries. And maybe we can't even be around. That is all true. That is all part of living in this sometimes beautiful and sometimes messy world. But if we are ever to love them, as Christ invites us to, I think we need to start understanding this identity of enemy. Think of it this way. If we choose to wish our enemy well, If we choose to desire goodness for them, if we choose to pray for good for them, if we choose 
to think thoughts of kindnesses for them. And listen, they may not even know we're doing this, okay? These may be people we cannot be around or don't have an opportunity to be around. But if we do these things, if we stop thinking negatively about them and stop talking negatively about them and stop referring to them as our enemies, how are they our enemy? How are they our enemy? See, Jesus, I believe, is getting at a far deeper truth here than what's on the surface a truth that can absolutely free us from the chains that hold most of us down. I don't believe Jesus here is saying, okay, listen, you're always going to have enemies, therefore learn to love them. I don't believe he's saying that at all. What I think he is doing is inviting us to something far, far better. It's a kingdom without enemies. A place of freedom from all the negative energy we use because we are constantly engaged in trying to navigate an us-them dynamic. Think of all that negative energy we're always involved in, in this us-them dynamic. The anxiety, the bitterness, the hatred, the anger, the fear, all of this stuff. Okay? So let's get real honest for a second this morning. Like real honest. I'm going to ask you to stare right into the shadow of your souls this morning. Or Robert Downey Jr. says, embrace the cactus. Why do we name others as enemies? Why do we give them this identity in the first place? Because if they are the enemy, we are not. This dynamic is at the root of all human failure. And it started right in the beginning when Adam said, she made me do it. She is bad. I am good. She is them. I am not. She is the enemy. See, this identity giving, doesn't, it takes us off the hook, right? It makes us feel good. Like I said, I need you to be honest this morning if this is going to resonate. It's a protective device. Self-preservation is the antichrist way. Even though American Christianity has become all about self-preservation, I, I don't think it's about Jesus Christ. If we focus on what makes them the enemy, we don't have to focus on what makes us complicit in the whole us-then dynamic. We don't have to acknowledge we are as much a part of being an enemy as they are. We do this in our personal lives. We do it corporately. We do it nationally. Last week during our discussion, we had a great conversation on Iran and why they're America's enemy. <laughs> it's interesting. All right, let me make a side note to maybe, maybe help us see what I'm getting at. This whole us-them thing is what makes gossip so addictive and so wrong. I never knew why God said in the Bible, don't gossip. I never knew why gossip was a sin, quote unquote. It never made sense to me. I just thought, well, we're just, you're just talking about someone. What the, I, but that's before I realized that these commands that we have in the Bible are not commands that God just arbitrarily makes up. They're invitations just to life. 
So after God finished creating us and everything else, what did he say? What did he call us? Very good, right? Very good. So whenever God is inviting us, commanding, quote unquote, us to do something, it's just an invitation to that very good state of humanity, of being. It's very good. So with gossip then, that's why it's so wrong, is because it's this foundational lie of making enemies. Did you hear what happened to Susie? Did you hear what Ted did? Except we Christians are much better at it than that because we know gossip's a sin, so we never start it like that. We start it with, hey, we need to talk about Susie so we can pray for her. And oh, Ted, we need to talk about Ted so we can pray for him. And here's the thing. The rush we're getting has nothing to do with looking behind the curtain and hearing something we didn't know before. That is not the rush. Be honest, you know what I'm talking about. The rush we're getting is, oh, that's not me. I didn't do that. That didn't happen to me. Come on, embrace the cactus, you know it. That's the addiction of gossip. I must be better than them because it sure isn't going on in my life. This is powerful stuff that Jesus is getting at. And it can free us so much. See, this is where transactionalism comes from. This is where legalism comes from. We created this whole idea of having to appease God based on an us-them dynamic. Adam, I'm sorry she infuriated you, God, and disobeyed. I didn't. Right? So if we're appeasing God correctly then they must be appeasing God incorrectly. Therefore, God hates them, but loves us. That's the whole dynamic that we've built up. And here's what's worse. Once we've created that dynamic, now we can freely call them the enemy, knowing that we don't only hate them, God hates them. And therefore, we can kill them because God's going to kill them too. It says it right in the Bible. See how that happens? And all it is is self-preservation. And here's what's worse. This dynamic causes us to embrace an identity for ourselves, which is not real. And then we spend all our time trying to protect that identity, which validates us as worthy and them as unworthy. This is where all the splits in religion and within Christianity and every other thing comes from. This is why we have to argue and fight for our theological positions. Because if we're wrong, oh no, that makes us them. But we're not them, we're us. And that's our identity. We're us. God loves us. God doesn't love them. They're wrong. This is where it all starts. This us, them. And so the cycle just keeps spinning and spinning out of control. And we're lost in this mess of self-preservation that causes us not to be able to accept the invitation from Jesus to be free. Love your enemies, be free. You know, when studying all this, I was, I was looking at the, uh, the history of when was Copernicus and Galileo discovered that the universe does not evolve around the Earth. And there was this great quote from one of the popes that said, well, obviously, the Bible is completely clear on this, and so we can just ignore that entire science. That is obviously wrong. And then that led to ending up, you know, 
killing these scientists that threw off everything. And, you know, hundreds of years later, looking back, we can say, oh my gosh, what was going on? But it made me think to myself, in two or three hundred years, what battles are we Christians raging right now with each other that people two or three hundred years from now are just going to go, what? How did they ever, what? They were fighting over that? And that person said, oh, the Bible's very clear on this issue? Like, that was a direct quote. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that someday during this series because the quote, I was just reading the quote and going, oh my gosh, like, this is all about this. This us-them dynamic. Jesus invites us to be freed of it all. Free to be loved by God as we are, not try to appease him. This is why I'm always talking about appeasement theology and how dangerous it is. Because it starts with how we're feeling. And so we think if, we, if there's a way to appease God and we're doing it right, we must be f- fine. And, and Jesus says, stop already. You're just hiding behind fig leaves. See, fig leaves, that whole story is the original first false identity. Remember? They sowed these fig leaves and God said, what are those? And they said, well, we're naked. And God was like, what? You're, what, naked? What is naked? Who, who told you we're naked? What? What is naked? That's an identity you just gave yourself. And we've been giving ourselves identities forever. And each other identities. And God says, stop. Grace reveals that all these identities, all this us-them is a lie. And grace invites us to transcend it all. To be free. But listen, this is a process. Because we have been in this identity thing since we were babies. And there's basic identities, then there's other identities, and there's layers and layers and layers and layers. And before you know it, this is the cause of all human problems. See, it starts with basic identities. So let's, yeah, I'll go through my basic identities. I'm a male. I was born in Worcester. I'm bald. I have blue eyes. I wear glasses. I'm married. I have two kids. Those are all identities, right? And those are all little communities. I don't engage in a lot of those communities. Like, I don't see bald guys and go, yay, bald, we're brothers, yay. I I don't engage in them. But I'm sure people put me in those identities. That's fine. Okay? But even these basic identities are sometimes not just the seeds of what's wrong. They are what's wrong. Think about it. We're born and we have a skin color. What is more basic than the color of the skin we're born with? And yet that simple, basic identity has been at the root of human evil forever. Is that crazy? And then the next layer of identity comes in, our likes and our dislikes. And I know that sounds adolescent, but we carry it right to adulthood. It starts with, you know, well, I like vanilla, you like chocolate. I like pie, you like cake. I like this band, you like that band. Right? I like these clothes, you like those clothes. I like the ocean, you like the mountains. And these are all identities. And it sounds like it's nothing, but it's not. Go to Fenway Park when the Yankees are in town. There's like war breaking out. Because there's communities. That's what we do. We make these communities. And all of a sudden it's us, them, us, them, us, them, us, them. We live in an us, them dynamic. We're navigating it constantly. And let me tell you about social media. It's not helping the us, them dynamic. I was on the school bus the other day, because I'm always on the school bus right now with my teams, and we happen to have boys and girls on the same bus, which never works out well. And then some of, I heard some of my girls, they put on a song on, on a Bluetooth and started cranking it, and they were singing, and all of a sudden I heard some guy goes, oh my gosh, she is horrible, shut that off. And you see what was happening? It was just an us-them dynamic. Like, if you like that music, ugh, 
I'm cool because I don't like, see how it's going? That's just adolescence. But this is what we do, all of us, all of us. And then the next layer comes, worldview, religion, politics. Oh, identities we just buy into and we give and we take. And then there's even another level probably that comes along where like there's these deeper psychological issues going on and we don't even know why we're calling enemies enemies, but we're doing it. And all these things create these us, them, within us, them, within us, them, within us, them, and it's just mess. And we are diminished greatly and our humanity suffers and we are firmly outside the kingdom of God as we spend all our energy on navigating this us, thems. And then what happens? And again, keep being honest here. Keep being free to be honest and embrace this cactus. Here's what happens. And this is what completes the lockdown of our lives into this mess. The person we have identified as enemy becomes less than human. And then it is easy to maintain this lie that they are an enemy. We, we, we read and, and discussed a great poem last week called Making an Enemy by Sam Keen. And that's what we do. We completely dehumanize them. And what happens is, and I'm sure you all know this, that enemy becomes nothing but the thing they did. That's it. Years ago, there was someone that hurt my family really badly. Really badly. And for years, that's all they were, was that thing they did to us. For years. If I saw them, if I heard their name, if I had to talk to them, all I could see is what they did. I no longer saw a person. I no longer saw a history of story. I no longer undersaw anything other than the identity I had given them, which is what they did to me. I couldn't love them. I didn't want to love them. They were just an enemy. I would read these words and I'd think they were stupid because they didn't make sense didn't make sense to me. Why? Why? There was no why. No one could give me a why. God would say, love your enemy. But then as I got older and I started to understand what they meant, they're not stupid words. It's not an arbitrary command to be us, to be someone God loves because we love our enemies as opposed to God hates them because they don't. That's not what this is. It's not what any of this is. This is all an invitation to life, an invitation to live free. I was a mess. Honestly, what would happen to me when that person, and that person had to come around, unfortunately? I couldn't even breathe sometimes. And then it created issues with my wife. It created issues with other people it, because I was a mess. And because Back in those days, I still thought everything was about commands and getting God to love you. That made me double a mess because I felt like I was this horrible Christian didn't get it. But these are words of freedom. This is God saying to us, be free. You don't have to live this way. You can instead love your enemies because you really don't have any. And he says, see the person. See the person behind what they did to you. 
That's why he was able to say, while people were killing him, while people were killing him. See, we have sanitized this so much. We've sanitized this story of Jesus so much. I wear a cross. That's how much we've sanitized it. It's ridiculous. We've sanitized the story so much. He was being killed, and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They knew what they were doing. The Romans perfected crucifixion. They knew exactly what they were doing. They had to get it just right, otherwise he would have died. The whole point of crucifixion was you nailed just right so they can't die. And so they suffer for three days or four days or five days. Sometimes they find people still alive a week later hanging on the cross. They knew exactly what they were doing. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He saw the person behind the deed. He saw the whole human story. He saw everything that went into making them come to that place. And then he says something even more radical, which is the whole secret of this whole thing. He says, see me in them. See me in them. And there we have it. This is why the whole us-them dynamic needs to go away if we are ever going to truly follow Christ. And that brings us right back to our Eucharistic living that we've been studying all year. Remember, we looked at these two spectacular things. See how it all comes together? This is why I love this woman at the well so much. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Everybody. Everybody, not us, not the good guys. Everybody. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. See why this whole Eucharistic living we've been studying is so important? When we can see us in Christ, Christ in us, we're all in this together, we can stop naming enemies. We can start to forgive. And here's the thing, it can start with ourselves. Who has that thing you said you wish you had never said? can still remember it, or if you're like me, you have like a thousand things you said you wish you had never said. That thing you did that you wish you never did. That someone, no one maybe, but you know you did it, but you know you did it. And you wish you had never, ever done it. That's our lie that we tell ourselves, that God sees us that way. That's why we're so busy working so hard to get God to love us, to get over that thing. God doesn't see that thing we did. He doesn't hear that thing we said. That's our own prison we put ourselves in. God just sees us and just loves us. And when we can break out of this whole identity giving, this whole us-them thing, that's when we can spend our energies not on all that anxiety and hatred and bitterness and this and this and this. No, we can spend our energies on learning God loves us as we are right now then we can learn to love ourselves, then we can learn to love others. Richard Rohr said, people who accept themselves accept others. People who hate themselves hate others. This is powerful. We create these us-them dynamics to protect ourselves. But when we can learn we do not need to protect ourselves because we are loved by God, we find that we are in the kingdom that has no end. We find we are part 
of a kingdom that love wins always. We find we can live free, that Jesus invites us to live free. See, this was the answer to David's psalm. This is why I had you read it, because it's such a powerful psalm. And it, it took me everything not to comment on this while it was being read. Oh, Benton needs dad. Remember, David said this. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies, destroy all my foes. Well, Jesus gave David that answer. And interestingly enough, David wrote the answer without even knowing he was writing the answer. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Yes, David, that's how I silence them. I am going to show you you don't have enemies except the ones you've made in your head and that you've identified because I love them. My unfailing love loves them as much as I love you. And here in our story, Jesus models this enemy love perfectly. Amazingly, when you realize that these are enemies, it's actually mind-blowing to watch how free it is, how free he is to love his enemies as we get through the story. I hope, I hope you will keep this all in your mind as we talk about this more and more. He doesn't have any enemies. That's why he was able to go to Samaria and love this woman. Rob Bell, Rob Bell has this great line. He says, Jesus has no thems. I love that. Jesus has no thems. It's a great mantra. I've been using it. Because listen, you have to practice this stuff. Remember we talk about this all the time, you feed the good wolf, right? Grace is what transforms us. And if we're not practicing living into grace, it's not just going to happen. We're not going to go and suddenly forgive and love on our worst enemy tomorrow if we haven't practiced our loving on our little enemies, right? So this mantra I've been using this whole fall, my soccer team doesn't quite know what to do with me because I haven't been yelling at the refs. Because I'm getting to games, and I see the guys in yellow, and I'm like, I have no thems. I have no thems. I have no them. And then they do what they always do, which is make really, which is drive really loud motorbikes. And then, which is make horrible calls. And I'm just sitting there. I have no thems. I have no thems. I have no thems. And my girl's like, coach? I'm like, yeah, no, it's okay. Sorry. I have no thems. And I'm practicing. We have to practice love. We have to, because what, what we're doing is, I don't believe Jesus is an example we can follow. You guys know that. I believe he is God who can change us. But we have to practice opening up to that transformation and that change. If we don't want it, right? These are conversations I have all the time with, with different people. About, you know, you just have to start to want this. So I've been practicing. Anyway, it's a great mantra. I have no thems. I have no thems. So let's watch. It's incredible. Jesus. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Seemingly innocuous. Listen to this. All right? These wells didn't have buckets. You had to bring your own bucket to get water out of them. That's a little background history. So for some reason, the disciples must have taken their bucket to town. My guess is Jesus told them to take their bucket to town because he knew exactly what he was doing. So he's thirsty. He needs a drink. He has no way to get one. He needs Jesus comes in need of his enemy. How, like that's just a, a wow moment. What else could ever break down the us-them dynamic than this? 
that to me is one of the most beautiful moments of thousands of beautiful moments in this story. Thousands. He comes here and he saw a person and none of the other identities she had been given by others. And there were plenty. We'll go through those through the story. There's the woman thing going on, the unclean thing going on. All these identities that this woman had been given by others and he saw none of them. He just saw this person. Niles on this scene wrote, the glory of the lion is the glory of the lamb. The only way to build love between two people or two groups of people is to be so related to each other as to stand in need of each other. In this needing, this is the other freedom we get when Jesus invites us to love our enemies. They can be our greatest teachers. Try this. Try this. The next time that person that gets you so out of sorts, that gets you so worked up, that gets you so angry or anxious or whatever it is, ask this question. What is it in me that is causing me to react so violently to this other human being? What can I learn from them? What can I receive from them? So Christ is inviting us to freedom. He offers us his example of loving others. I want to encourage us to try to trust this invitation. Trust that this is not an arbitrary command that's stupid, but this is an invitation to a very good way of living. As God said after he created us, this is very good. So let's approach others in true humility. Let's approach others in genuine concern for their well-being and in a conscious need of them. And let's try and practice this week to see people as human, not as what they did to us or what they're doing to us. Let's try to understand their lives and their stories that got them to this point. Let's try to engage them in authentic relationship. And listen, that might just even be in our hearts and minds because they might not be people we can be with. I get that. But let's try to love people where they are at. I'm going to put up a long quote from Michael Craven because I think it's worth it for us. Too often, our attitude toward the surrounding culture and those who make it up is judgmental and condemning. We thoughtlessly criticize anything that isn't distinctly Christian. When met with opposing ideas, we draw cultural battle lines, and those on the other side are considered the enemy. And listen, we do this within Christianity too, right? They're the enemy because they don't have the same theology as us. We vilify and ridicule the representatives of godless culture, and rather than engage with and love them, we take offense and withdraw into our Christian enclaves. Practically speaking, many Christians live as if they really don't like the world or anyone in it. He goes on, we are often doing precisely the opposite of what Jesus did. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Sinners didn't offend Jesus. And you can put any word in there for sinners. Enemies didn't offend you. These were the very people to whom he was drawn and engaged with. The dirty, the broken, the vulgar, the immoral, and the enemy. Jesus didn't condemn these. He engaged them, ate and drank with them, defended them against their accusers. He loved them, and because he first loved them, 
and turn, they followed him. So John tells us that in the heat of a midday, Jesus came to this hillside outside of Sychar, and he said to the woman at the well, I need a drink. His humble need broke down an us-them dynamic that was literally as old as time, and it led to her salvation in many of her village people. Later, we find out, John tells us, Jesus came in the heat of another midday to a hill outside of Jerusalem, and he said, I need a drink. And out of that humble need, the whole world was saved. Thanks be to God. Amen.